Well, good morning. It's good to see you on this Lord's Day, this new year. The Lord has given us to be back together. It's good in every way because God is good. Amen. Amen. Well, I'm excited this morning. We are going to be jumping into a new sermon series, the book of Judges. Everybody stand up. The pastor's lost his mind. He's all wired up this morning. That's what happens when uh, you don't preach for two weeks. Um, if you have... Let's, how am I going to do this? If you have ever heard a sermon from the book of Judges, remain standing. So if you've not heard anything from Judges ever preached, sit down. Okay? If you have... Okay, some of you just starting to... Oh, I don't know. You're looking in your Bibles... So if you have never heard a sermon in Judges that, had nothing, that didn't have anything to do with Samson or Gideon, sit down. I knew I'd get some of you. Yep. So that means some of you, so if you have heard an entire sermon series through the book of Judges, remain standing. Well, Dan and Angela, you are welcome to be exempt from this. Uh, and Rochelle, all right. Well, amen. Well, we've got some work to do. We're going to be looking at the book of Judges, excited uh, to see what the Lord will do. We're actually going to be walking through this book together, uh, probably end it sometime towards the end of April, Lord willing. When you think about the book of Judges, Judges is a book that is not for the faint of hearts. In fact, many in the church have had issues with it, um, so they ignore it, or they do other things with it. Uh, the book of Judges really is a historical continuation of where Joshua leaves off. And so Joshua is, is the people of God coming into the promised land. Moses dies, Joshua takes over, Joshua leads him into the promised land, and Judges really continues that conquest, if you will, of them possessing or taking possession of the land. And so it documents, Judges documents the 12 tribes of Israel after Joshua's death as they attempt to possess their specific allotments of land. And so that's really what it's about. But what happens is it becomes much more than that. It, in fact, many refer to it as a shocking and graphic narrative. Matt Smethurst, who writes for the Gospel Coalition, said this about judges. If you're, looking for a, if you're looking to feel warm and cozy, I wouldn't recommend the book of Judges. It's a bleak story. A 21-chapter downward spiral featuring deception, oppression, idolatry, murder, gang rape, and apostasy, just to name a few sins. And contrary to what you may recall from that old Sunday school felt board, even its heroes, even its heroes, Gideon, Samson, for example, aren't exactly heroes. As a result of that kind of description about the book of Judges, there have been typically two approaches to this book, and I would say two wrong approaches to the book of Judges. One, completely ignore it because of its R-rated material. Too heavy, too, too much, too graphic, ignore it. Set it aside, move on to Proverbs. Or another wrong approach is to sensationalize the book by pointing to heroes and examples that actually aren't quite heroes and examples. 
So how should we view this book? How, how should we view the book of Judges? Why would we want to take four months and walk through this narrative of the Old Testament? Well, the New Testament actually answers that question for us. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, Paul says, all scripture, he's referring to the Old Testament because the New Testament didn't exist yet. He says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Again, Paul, in Romans chapter 15, verse four, says, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So according to those two verses, Judges, which is in the Old Testament, is profitable for us for training in righteousness and it's written for our encouragement. It's profitable for us because it trains us in righteousness and it was written to encourage us. Just like the rest of the Old Testament. But even as we begin to wade into this book, I think that even in the midst of the deception and the oppression and the idolatry and the murder, what you're going to see is something, a whole, really something much more appealing. One commentator put it this way, he said the book of Judges is about God forging for himself a community of worshipers in a time when all people did what was right in their own eyes. I've titled this sermon series, Relentless Grace. Relentless Grace, because really that's what the book of Judges is about. It's God relentlessly pursuing a people for himself in spite of all of their faithless failures for his glory. Judges is ultimately about God's relentless grace to have for himself a people, even when this people continue to be flawed and faithless. So with that in mind, let's begin in Judges chapter one. I'm gonna read the entire chapter, chapter one. So follow along with me as I read beginning in verse one. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up and the Lord gave the Canaanites to the, and the Perizzites into their hand and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And there they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country, in the Negev, and in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now, name, now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba. And they defeated Shishai and Ahiman and Talmai. From there they went against the inhabitants of Debir 
And Debir was formerly Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, he who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, I will give him Aksa, my daughter, for a wife. Othniel and the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it, and he gave him Achish, his daughter, for a wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask for her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, what do you want? She said to him, give me a blessing. Since you have given me the land of the Negev, Negev, give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. And the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negev near Arad. And they went and settled with the people. And Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephthah and devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city is called Hormah. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory and Ashkelon with its territory and Ekron with its territory. And the Lord was with Judah and he took possession of the hill country. But he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb as Moses had said and he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel for the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city and they said to him, please show us the way into the city and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city. And they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and his, all his family go. The man went into the land of the Hittites and built a city called its name Luz. That is its name to this day. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shean and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, and the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Ablim and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, for the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer, and the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of uh, Nahalo. So the Canaanites lived among them, but became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or Ahalab or Aksib or Helba or Afik or Rehob. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites and the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth Anath, so they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath became subject to forced labor for them. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Heres, in Ajalon, and in Shalbim, but the land but the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them and they became subject to forced labor. And the border of the Amorites ran from the accent of Akrabim from Selah and upward. Let's pray. Father, as we consider this word this morning, would you help us to understand how Judges is profitable for teaching reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Lord, would you help us to see what you inspired here in these words in Judges is for our instruction and our encouragement. God, would you bring that to bear upon our lives today? Would you make us more like Jesus as we encounter your word today and as we learn from it? Lord, transform lives even now as we consider this truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Well, have you ever been halfway committed to something? Maybe that's you and New Year's resolutions. I don't know. Halfway committed. Or maybe, maybe a common phrase that comes from you is, that's good enough. I'm not just talking about those of you who work for the government. I'm talking about the rest of us as well. It's good enough. You ever say that kind of thing? Or just halfway committed. Maybe you found yourself doing something merely to please someone else, but your heart really wasn't into it. Maybe you find yourself ignoring responsibilities that you know that you certainly have, but it's just too much work, too much investment, too much time. Well, if anything that describes God's people at this point in their existence is that while they enjoyed many victories, they remained half-hearted in their commitment to God and to his mission. In fact, if you could describe how the people thought and acted at this particular point in their history, it would be, this is good enough. One thing that God had made abundantly clear to Moses and to the rest of the people through Moses, through Joshua, once the people entered the land, was that the Canaanites were to be entirely eradicated from the land. So the book of Joshua records the beginning of that conquest and now Judges continues the story. But even in our reading today, even in chapter one, we know that the Canaanites are still around. Sure, many have been killed, many have been conquered, but many remained. If anything the book of Judges does, it reminds us the importance of taking God at his word and how half-hearted devotion to him will bring serious consequences. God, when he commands us to do something, he has a reason, a good reason for us to do what he said to do. And so as we consider chapter one and even into chapter two and a little bit later this morning, I want us to consider two indicators and three results of half-hearted commitment to the Lord. Two things that indicate you may be half-hearted in your commitment to the Lord and three results of what happens when we are halfway committed or we approach the Christian life in the good enough mentality that so many often do. Two indicators, three results. Indicator number one of half-hearted commitment to the Lord is this. God's sufficiency is denied. We see indicators of half-heartedness, and one of those is that the people of God did not see the sufficiency of God as enough. Now, God's people did not reveal their good enough approach to obedience to God overnight. We're in Judges. This was years after their coming into the promised land. We're not talking about people who crossed over the river and boom, okay, I'm just gonna do enough to get by. We're talking about years now had gone by. Leadership have, has transitioned a couple times now. And so one of the things that I think should be a good reminder for each of us, even as we consider judges, is that we will only reveal over time the true condition of our hearts. 
time will reveal the true condition of our hearts. Used to when people would come out from a service and make some kind of comment about the sermon, good sermon pastor, I would often say to people, if I knew them really well, time will tell. Time will tell. Just how much you absorbed and how much you're willing to, to take in and, and apply. So the first thing that we see here in their half-heartedness is that the sufficiency of God is denied. Again, the book of Judges begins with both clear instruction and assurance from the Lord. Look at what we see. It says, Judah shall go up. This is verse two. The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hands. Instruction and assurance. Do you see that? You go up. The land is yours. Go do this. I will guarantee victory. That's what verse two says. Instruction and assurance. The Lord had made a promise, even back in Joshua as well. If you turn the page back to Joshua chapter 23, Joshua chapter 23, and you read all the way down, beginning of verse two, down to verse nine, Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and heads, its judges and officers, and said to them, I am now old and well advanced in years, and you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all the nations for your sake, for it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes those nations that remain, along with all the nations that I have already cut off from the Jordan to the great sea in the west. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight, and you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. Therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand or to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them, but you shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you this day. Joshua proclaimed, the Lord through Joshua proclaimed the sufficiency of God to do as he said. The Lord had made a promise, first to Moses, then to Joshua, and now to the people in Judges that the land would be theirs. And as you read the first chapter, things seem to be going quite well. Especially in the first 18 verses. I mean, you read through there and, and you see, verse four testifies to the fact that God provides for them in battle, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand. They go and they conquer, the Lord provides, and victory is theirs. In verses 11 through 15, we sort of have a side story of romance. Caleb says, listen, whoever goes and takes this land, they get my daughter for a wife. Nothniel, hey, I'm all over that, got it. Guy got the land, he gets the wife. But shortly after that, we begin to see a significant turn of events. After verse 18, what seems to be a faithful and successful military venture comes to what we would call a downward spiral beginning in verse 19. Even the first part of verse 19 seems like a great assessment, doesn't it? Verse 19, and the Lord was with Judah and he took possession of the hill country. But a little conjunction always should cause you pause. But 
he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. What happened? What happened in one verse? They took possession of the hill country. Things were going well, military success. Flags were being raised, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. Did God fail Judah at this point? Not at all. But Judah certainly failed God. As Judah advanced, they come against what's described here for us as chariots of iron. I don't know if they were F-35s or F-18s. I don't know. They were just impressive military personnel in their, in their wake. And they stopped. Instead of continuing to trust in God's sufficiency to do as he promised he would do, they looked to their own ability and determined they could not advance. Back in Joshua, the Lord had promised victory even over chariots of iron. Look, listen to Joshua 17, verses 16 through 18. Joshua 17, 16 through 18. This time it's being addressed to the people of Joseph. The people of Joseph said, the hill country is not enough for us, yet all the Canaanites who dwell in the, plate, in the plain have chariots of iron both those in Beth Sheon and its villages and those in the valley of Jezreel. Then Joshua said to the house of Joseph, apparently these chariots of iron were like a huge stumbling block. They're like, we just can't, this is it. We can't do this. But in Joshua 17, then Joshua said to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, you are a numerous people and have great power. You shall not have one allotment only, but the hill country shall be yours. For though it is a forest, you shall clear it and possess it to its farthest borders. For you shall drive out the Canaanites, though they have chariots of iron, and though they are strong. Judges, chapter one, verse 19. But he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. See, what happens here, friends, is the people had taken their eyes off the Lord. They were assessing the situation that was before them based upon their own capabilities and their own strength and not what the Lord could do and what the Lord had even promised he would do. Friends, how often have we made similar assessments and as a result, failed to walk in obedience to the Lord? How often have we been faithful to the Lord and, and walking in the ways of the Lord and then we come up against an obstacle and we're like, we just can't do this, God. Impossible. So we shut down and we do nothing. Sure, common sense told them they are greater. Human perspective, don't know how we're gonna overcome it. Be like BB guns against tanks, I guess, is, is, is the kind of the picture we get here. But God had promised to give them victory. And he had, he had given them victory already multiple times. But now all of a sudden they stop and they fail to find God sufficient for the task at hand. Brothers and sisters, how often 
How often do we do the same? How often do we stop because we do not find God sufficient any longer in our lives to enable us to do what he's called us and promised for us? But not only do we see that as an indicator of half-heartedness, denying the sufficiency of God, but also God's commands are neglected. As the narrative continues, we, we see things kind of deteriorate quite rapidly. And if you didn't pick up on that, what happens is that the attitude of Judah begins to spread like wildfire and tribe after tribe after tribe begins to fail to execute the mission that God had called them to fulfill. It sounds like a, almost like a broken record with different names after each verse. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants. And Ephraim did not drive out the inhabitants. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants. And Dan, well, the Amorites pressed them back into the hill country. And they did not drive out the inhabitants. And as a result, Ephraim allows Canaanites to live among them. Zebulun puts some to forced labor. And Asher, along with Naphtali, well, instead of allowing the Canaanites to live among them, they just go and live among the Canaanites, no problem. This was not their instruction. They had failed to fulfill God's clear command. Yes, they had many victories. They had success, but they had still failed, they had still failed to do what God had called them to do. Halfway success is not success in God's eyes. The problem here was that God, nor his word, nor his commands, held sway in the lives of his people. Sure, they gave him a certain recognition, but he certainly was not sufficient for them. His commands were not their priority. And again, how often have we reflected the same in our own lives? How often have we, begin, just do an assessment, how often have we failed God? Have, how often have we showed demonstration of half-hearted commitment and, and good enough obedience to God because we find him insufficient and his commands not a priority? When we find God insufficient and his word unimportant, we need to realize there will be several things that happen as a result. Let's look at those three results that I want us to consider. So you see the indicators. God's not sufficient, God's word's not a priority. Now I want us to see the results of that kind of attitude. First, we see that we become complacent. We become complacent. You know, if we did not have God's previous instruction to the Israelites to rid the land of all the Canaanites, and God's rebuke here in this passage later on, it would seem as if Israel had the upper hand. You could read to verse 18 and think, they're doing pretty well. They're taking land, they're winning. 
After, I mean, just think about this. These people, not too long ago, were slaves in Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt, and now they're, they're a military success in, the, in their own perspective. They're, they're conquering people. They're, they're defeating cities. They're even putting people into forced labor. And you, you, you kind of step back and say, well, they're not doing half bad at them. Just look how far they've come. Don't you think it's just, it's good enough to say, good job Israelites? I mean, they've gone from being slaves to conquering cities. The problem was not their successes. The problem was what they had refused to do. Even at the point where they were seeing military success, they let up. I want you to notice verse 28. This is an important verse in this whole chapter, I think, that really illustrates the heart attitude of Israel. Let's look at verse 28. When Israel grew strong, not a moment of weakness, This is a moment of strength and power. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. Notice when they chose not to complete the command of God was not at a point when Israel was weak. It was at a point when they were strong. Another warning emerges from the text. It's often in times of strength that we're the most vulnerable because it's in times of strength that we grow complacent. It's in times of strength that we grow apathetic. It's in times of strength that we grow weary. Friends, there is a level of complacency and comfort that comes with success. Whether you as a Christian feel like you are walking in God's grace and you are fighting sin well, you're in the word, you're meditating on scripture, memorizing scripture, your prayer life is flourishing, you're walking in strength and then it's at that moment when we grow, we let our guard down. We grow complacent a little little bit and we think as if nothing can hinder us. Even as a church, it might look like Redeeming Grace Baptist Church, that things are going extremely well. And we could say many things are going well. I mean, just look at what's happening. We're growing. We had a significant surplus in our budget last year. I mean, the giving was significant. We had more money than we spent. healthy church structure, the things seem to be moving in the right direction. Yeah, there are many things that need to be addressed and we work on them when no church is perfect. You can step back and say, think things are well. But it's in that moment that we grow complacent. It's in that moment of strength that we grow kind of blind to the need of perseverance. 
Friends, let this be a warning to us. It's in times of strength that we are the most vulnerable because there is that level of complacency and comfort that strength often breeds in our hearts. That is a result of half-heartedness, complacency. But then another one is that we get confused. We get confused, we grow confused. Israel was commanded to rid the land of the Canaanites. Now, some people have a hard time with that because of what was commanded previously in the, in the law and then through Moses and then later through Joshua. You, you mean God's telling these people, his people, to go into a land and wipe it out, completely kill everybody, totally destroy it. Well, that's what he commanded them to do. And, and a lot of people, well, why would he do that? Well, several things we need to remember is that number one, these were not an innocent people. They were pagan idolaters. Many of them often sacrificed children. I mean, these were not just innocent bystanders. They were pagan idolaters. In fact, if you go back to verse seven, one of their leaders even affirms the justice of God, doesn't he? Adonai Bezek, however you say his name, he said, 70 kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. I did this to them, and as I have done, so God has repaid me. He affirms the justice of God. This Canaanite did not have a problem with God's judgment upon them. But it was also because this was to be a land where God's people were to live a life of covenant faithfulness to him. But the result we see so far is that they think they have done enough. But what would happen is they would be subtly poisoned and influenced by the paganism, the idolatry that was still there in the land. That's exactly why the Lord said to eradicate the land. There's several things that we could point out that the Israelites seem to be confused over. Number one, they seem to confuse outward success with godly success, or they re reverse that. They seem to confuse godly success with outward success. Sure, they might have won some critical victories along the way. They might have taken some cities that they were supposed to take, and, and they did. But that did not mean that God was perfectly pleased with them. Let this teach us that it is possible, it is possible to seem outwardly successful to those around you and still be a failure in the eyes of God. It's possible to seem like a success to those around you, but yet be a failure still in the eyes of God. I don't say that to, to heap doubt and fear and all these things in your heart. I don't let the Holy Spirit apply that to you as he seems fit. I'm not him. God has called us to trust him with all areas of our lives. He wants us to embrace his lordship in every area, every area of our lives, not just the ones we choose. He's either Lord or he's not. We can't categorize God's authority in our lives by doing, okay, I'll do all these things just like you tell me, God, but here I'm not going to, to, to do exactly as you say. Because even if I do all of these things to those around me, I'm sure gonna look successful, I'm gonna look godly, I'm gonna look righteous. 
But friend, at the end of the day, you're not going to stand be- beside your spouse. You're not going to stand in front of your, your friend or your children or anyone else. When you stand in judgment, you will stand before a holy and righteous God. Do not confuse outward worldly success with godly success. Don't mix the two. Don't confuse the two. They also confused what Tim Keller says is I can't and I won't. They confused I can't with I want. Verse one, or excuse me, chapter one, verse 19, we read that Judah was unable. They could not drive out the chariots. But pick up with me in chapter two. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? Verse 19, it says, they could not. Chapter two, verse two, God says, you would not. It's a big difference. What a great question for us to ponder in our own obedience. How often are we saying, I cannot, when it's really, I will not? Think about that in your own life. How often before the Lord, when we know we're supposed to be pursuing something, we're supposed to be doing something, and we simply say, I can't do it, when in reality is, I will not do it. A big difference. We grow confused. Confuse what obedience looks like. We, we confuse even the motive of our, of our own heart. But then number three, we grow encumbered. Look at verse three, chapter two. So now I will say, I will not drive them out before you. This is the consequence. I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides and their gods shall be a snare to you. As the angel, the Lord spoke these words, all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept and they called the name of the place Bakim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. Because the people of God refused to carry out the full extent of the commands to which he was given, his people was given, they now reap the consequences as the Canaanites were told, God says, they're gonna become a thorn in your side. You wouldn't drive them out, okay? Consequence is yours. Their gods are going to become a snare to you. And we know we read later on in the history of Israel, it was for this very reason, for this very reason that the people of God eventually fell to the Assyrians and Babylonians were taken off into exile because they became idolaters. Friends, there's very good reason God calls us to obedience. You notice this downward spiral when they refuse to carry out the full extent of the commands, this downward spiral happens. You see it in verse 30, Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron and the inhabitants of Nahal, so the Canaanites lived among them, but became subject to forced labor. They, they tolerated sin, just allowed it to exist within their own ranks. And then in verse 30 through 31, or 31 and 32, Asher doesn't drive out the inhabitants, 
and instead lives among the Canaanites. So it's not the Canaanites living among them. They go and live among the Canaanites. They accommodated sin. Because of this toleration and accommodation, the people of God would soon find themselves far, far removed from where they needed to be in the worship of God. Friends, we need to ever be so careful that we do not ignore the clear commands and warnings of God. When he teaches us, when he instructs us, when he gives us his word and his promise that accompanies his word, we need to heed it. See, in chapter two, he brings his assessment, explains the consequences. But notice here, there's a, there's a dilemma that emerges. It doesn't emerge, it's been there. But there's a dilemma or a tension here. On one hand, God is holy and just and cannot tolerate evil and sin. He, he, even among his own people, he will not tolerate wickedness. Yet, on the other hand, God is loving and merciful and faithful to his promise. He's made a covenant. And he said time after time again, I'm going to keep my covenant. Even if you don't keep your end of it, I will keep my end of it. So there's a dilemma, there's a tension here that's emerging out of this text. God's justice and God's promises and faithfulness. God's holiness, his righteousness is there. And yet then you have his love and his mercy and his grace, which is also present. There's a tension here. God can't tolerate sin, and yet he cannot tolerate the total destruction of a people he said he would create. How do we, how do we solve this dilemma? Well, the Old Testament doesn't solve it. It presents the dilemma. It sets the stage for the solution, which happens in the New Testament when Christ comes. Because only Jesus is the one that can stand in that gap and receive the just and righteous consequences for our sin and yet be the vessel through which God extends his grace and mercy. It's a beautiful reality. Only in Christ do you have the answer to this problem. God's holiness, God's mercy. We deserve to be judged. We deserve to be condemned and punished because of our rebellion and because of our arrogance, because of our own inadequacies to fulfill the commands of God. And yet, God has promised that he will have a people for himself. And yet this people that he's gonna have for himself can't save themselves. And so he sends his only son into the world to be the answer, to be the one that would absorb his righteous anger towards sin and yet be the one that would extend loving grace to those who deserve his judgment. And that's the, that's the reality we all face. We all are sinners. None of us are any better than these Israelites in the book of Judges. Just our story years before we lived. None of us are any better. All of us are made of the same material. We, we all have the same parents, Adam and Eve. And only in Christ can this tension, God's holiness, God's mercy, be perfectly satisfied because it is Jesus who would die in the place of sinners as God fulfilled his promise to not only have, but to make a people for himself. And he sealed that promise through the finished work of his son so that all who would trust in him
would have their sins forgiven and be able to be adopted into his family forever. Friend, that's your hope. If you're here today and you're not a believer, you're not a Christian, you feel like you have more in common with the Canaanites or maybe these obstinate Israelites, you feel like that you're just in rebellion against God and you now understand, okay, I'm gonna have to face the holy God one day and I don't know what I'm gonna do on that day. If, you, if that's you right now, if, we, if you were to stand before God right now, holy God, and you were gonna have to give an account to him and answer him as to why he should allow you into his presence and his kingdom, what would you say? And if, if you find yourself stumbling for words right now, friend, there is hope for you. Jesus, Jesus Christ who came into the world to die for people just like you, and he did, he died, so that you wouldn't have to stand there dumbfounded and say, I don't know. You'd say, my hope's in Jesus. I can't save myself, Lord, but I have placed every bit of my faith in him because I know he did what I needed. Friend, that is your hope today. If you do not know Jesus Christ, friend, I would, do not leave here today without talking with someone about how you can know him, trust in him. You don't have to have a special time to, to come to Jesus. Right now is the invitation. Trust in Jesus. If you're not a Christian, you know you're condemned, you, 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 you have no hope. Right now, believe in Jesus Christ. Turn from your sin, trust in him. Right now, he's promised that if you would, that he would give you all that he needed, all you ever need. Because God is a God of relentless grace. If anything else we learn in Judges, it's no matter how dire the circumstance, no matter how desperate the people, God is faithful to his word to keep his covenant. Notice the response of the people. The people lifted up their voices and wept, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. They cried, and their tears led to sacrifice. Yet the text gives us no indication of anything further. Was their repentance genuine? Well, time would tell, and I'm afraid time would tell quite a different story. Tears are good. Indeed, there are a few two tears over our sins these days, but listen, God has called us to more than just tears. He has called us to follow him. and not to follow him halfway. Not following him in, in, the, in the mindset of good enough. God does, Jesus did not die for people to simply say, this is good enough for me. He died for people to be totally transformed, to lay their lives down as living sacrifices, to love him, to follow him, to obey him all the way for his glory. Friend, as you look back into 2015, I'm not a big, to me, another day is another day, another year is another year. I'm not all into the resolutions and stuff, but let this be a marker. As you look back into the past year, what was your life like? Are you more reflected of these half-hearted Israelites? Or is your devotion to Jesus total. And as you look ahead into a new year, and it's not just a new year, as you look ahead, what is going to be the desire and motive of your heart today? Today. 
Is it good enough where you are? Is that your assessment? Where you are right now with the Lord, is it good enough for you? God has called us to more than just good enough. He's called us to faithfully love him and follow him. Because, and because we have a great savior who lived and died for us, we have the promise that God gave, his Holy Spirit who lives in us to enable us by his grace to do as he said for us to do. Let's be faithful in doing that by his grace for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this reminder today. God, we thank you for this instruction, this teaching, for the correction, for the encouragement we have even in the book of Judges. Lord, I pray now that as we consider our own hearts before you, Lord, Maybe there are some in this room that aren't Christians and they, they, they're wrestling with that even now, Lord. I pray, God, that you would do that gracious work of drawing them to yourself, Lord. God, awaken in their hearts a hatred for sin, awaken in their hearts a, a true yearning for Christ and help them to run hard and fast into his arms by faith. Father, for believers in this room, Lord, we might look at this passage today and just be reminded of our own half-hearted attitudes. We might be reminded of how often we've said, this is good enough. God, would you forgive us for such complacency? Would you forgive us for such an attitude? God, you are worthy of all that we can give all that we can do for your glory. Help us not to see you through the lenses of half-heartedness. God, help us to see you in the beauty of who you are. Help us to love you for who you are. And Lord, help us to long to follow hard and fast after you. God, you have not saved us to merely be good enough. You've saved us to follow. So God, would you help us to do that? We can't do that on our own. We can't, we can't obey you as you've called us to just in our own strength. We need your help. So God, would you convict us where we need convicting? Would you convict those areas of complacency and those areas in our lives where we have neglected you? God, maybe we, we see you sufficient to a point and maybe we, We've not trusted in the fullness of your sufficiency. Maybe we like to obey your word when it's convenient and easy, but Lord, the hard things, God, we just ignore them. God, would you make us a faithful people because you are a faithful God. God, we thank you for loving us in spite of our failures. We thank you for loving us in spite of our own rebellion against you. Help us now, Lord, by your grace to live a life pleasing to you, to, to respond in a way that's pleasing to you even now. Thank you, Lord, for this word. Thank you for reminding us and teaching us even now today. Pray this in Christ's name, amen.